Thank you, Therese and Jess and Kyle and Allison. Uh, a lot of you guys don't, maybe you do realize it, maybe you don't, but they spent a lot of extra time here. Got here early this morning, was anticipating a meeting, someone to discuss a few things. Um, I got here at 9.30 and they were already right into it, so I know you guys put a ton of time in and it's pretty awesome, so thank you for doing it. Um, I missed last week. I was in Florida with Brenda and we got to sit in the sun for a couple days visiting my sister. And uh, I got to confess, I didn't miss the cold weather, not even a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm about ready. I think I'm a little bit more than about ready for this warm weather that I think we're all going to start experiencing here in the next about 10 days. I think we're going to start seeing it climb pretty quickly. But uh, we're going to wrap up a sermon series that we've been on for three months, would you say? Steve, Justin, two and a half, three months, something like that. Eight Beatitudes. A couple of them went twice. Um, we're going to wrap those up this morning. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 1, where it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he's referring to Jesus here. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them. And uh, he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Justin preached on that last, uh, last Sunday. And this morning, we're going to preach on the last one. And it's uh, the eighth beatitude. I don't want to fall on that later. Uh, the eighth beatitude, and it is starting in verse... 10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, So they persecuted the prophet, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I want to remind ourselves that the word blessed is in the Greek makarios, and it means simply uh, to be happy, to be fortunate, to be well off. And so we have these eight blessings that Jesus is talking to his disciples in the longest and the first sermon that we have from his lips. And it is saying that we are, be, we are going to be happy, we're going to be fortunate, we're going to be well off if we observe these aspects of his sermon. And so as I'm looking at this verse through 10 and 11, it's always perplexed me for a long time, just this concept that we're going to be happy when we're persecuted. That we're going to be well off when we're persecuted. And I'm going to try and make some sense of that today. Uh, th so, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's two words there that I want to look at a little bit and just kind of qualify them. But first, the word persecuted means to pursue, to follow after, or to press toward. It's, it's like this, it's, a, it's an active word. It's something like, I am pursuing something. I am, I am following after, I am, I am actively seeking to destroy this person. The word righteousness simply means innocent, holy, or justification. And then when you look at the word insult and you break down the verse, insult means to defame, taunt, chide, or rail at. I'm kind of, when I, when I heard that, I was thinking of King David walking in, and Shimei curses him and throws rocks at him. 
and throws rocks at his uh, servants as well. And uh, that's what I think of the word railing at someone, but this word defame as well is in there. And the word persecute means to pursue, follow after, or press toward. And falsely, that's in this passage here, means to utter an untruth, attempt to deceive by a falsehood, and evil, so kind of breaking down the main words here, uh, evil is hurtful, bad, evil, grievous, lewd, malicious, or wicked. Now the two words that I want to look at is the concept of because of. Now it's mine. I got a ball. It's the globe. We're going to be talking about everybody that belongs on this thing right here, this, this ball here that looks like the world. Um, because of. The two words that are very important in this text, because of. And the reason I think it's important is because it's acknowledging why persecution is happening. And, we, and we, when we look at this, it's, it's saying persecution is happening, and blessed are those who are persecuted because of Jesus and because of righteousness. Those two things. And so some people, I mean, I, I use an example here, is uh, suppose there's a guy who's a preacher at some big, large megachurch somewhere, and... The FBI comes in with the IRS, and they raid the church building, and behind the drywall, they find hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash behind the drywall in, say, the bathroom or something. And he goes to jail for embezzlement and tax evasion. He gets out of jail, and he releases a statement to his congregation saying, look, we knew this was going to happen. We knew that Christians are going to be persecuted by our government. Does that sound like the type of persecution that Jesus is referring to here? I, d I don't think so. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that it's talking about persecution for, for lawlessness or for uh, lack of following uh, what God has told us to follow. Rather, it's talking about uh, people that are persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of Jesus. And a more appropriate tie-in to what this verse would be would be talking about someone like... Um, Jack Phillips. Does anybody know the name Jack Phillips? No? He's a, he's a baker in Colorado. And Jack Phillips, uh, he won a, a partial U.S. Supreme Court victory after refusing to make a gay couple's cake because of his faith. His faith in God says, I don't agree with this lifestyle, therefore I'm not going to make a cake, you know, uh, encouraging this. And so he, he went to court over it, and he won a partial Supreme Court uh, case. But uh, he also lost an appeal in January of 2023 in the latest legal fight because someone came to him, and they said, we want, uh, it was Adam's, uh, Autumn, uh, sorry, Adam, Autumn Scardina, uh, and it was a transgender uh, male that was transitioning into a female, wanted, to wanted him to make a cake to celebrate this, and it was pink frosting and, and blue, uh, blue inside, blue whatever, the frosting is the pink, what's the other stuff they cheat? The cake part, I mean, the flour, the dough, all that stuff, okay, that was blue, and he says, I don't want to do that because it goes against my, my freedom of speech, and so they went to court over it, and so that's been going on, uh, and one thing that it was said about that was, by the way, we're going to get a little political today, I don't think we can not get political when we talk about persecution of Christians. Um, so we're going to get a little political today. Relying on the findings of a Denver judge in a 2021 trial in the dispute, the appeals court said Phillips 
shop initially agreed to make the cake, but then refused after Scardina explained that she was going to use it to celebrate her transition from male to female. Phillips, who is represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, maintains that the cake, uh, the cakes he creates are a form of speech and plans to appeal. John McHugh, one of the lawyers who represents Scardina, said the court looked carefully at all the arguments and evidence from the trial. They just uh, object to the idea of Miss Scardina wanting a birthday cake that reflect her status as a transgender woman because they object to the existence of transgender people. That was the, the counsel for the uh, for uh, Mr. Miss Scardina uh, saying that it was because they were going against their desire to be who they wanted to be. The baker who has been harassed, this was the part that was interesting to me the most, the baker who has been harassed for over a decade Keeping in mind, this baker won a U.S. Supreme Court case. Okay, It was ended. This is no longer required of him to do this. We're not going to force him to do it or close his business down. And yet, the baker who has been harassed for over a decade is bombarded with requests to make the most profane cakes and drag in and out of court for trying to run his business as a Christian. Persecution that continues despite his being... Uh, his having prevailed at the Supreme Court. That is the persecution that I'm referring to. It is his faith that is saying, I don't agree with this. I'm not going around hate speech. I'm just saying, I don't want to be a part of this type of lifestyle. I don't want to advocate for it. And yet, for the last 10 years, the offensive, the pursuit, the persecution is, there are probably a thousand cake makers that will build whatever you want built, but I'm going to specifically go to this person knowing for a fact it is against their faith. And I'm going to request it, and when they say no, I'm going to take them to court. That is what I would consider more than the 100000 or several hundred thousand dollars tucked behind a drywall. I would consider this as persecution. More closer to home for me was a coach named Joe Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy was an assistant football coach at a uh, Washington school in the small town of Bremerton, uh, Washington. And there's a, a less than 45,000 people that are in the town of Bremerton. And about seven years ago, Joe Kennedy, at the end of the game, would go to the middle of the field after a football game, and he would pray out loud. And sometimes his players would join him in the prayer. And he would pray for who knows what. And this was uh, something that the school district, the Bremerton School District, took him to suit, and they fired him over praying. And this is what it says here, is that he was fired for his, uh, exercising his First Amendment rights to pray to God in public. It took him almost seven years to fight to undo this unjust persecution, prevailing only when the Supreme Court ruled that, quote, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal, religious observance doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. Now, this is what the ABC News outlet um, said about this in an article recently. It says, a former, this became national news when this came out, a former high school, public high school football coach in Washington State who famously lost his job for leading prayers on the field after games will be reinstated by the spring of next year, court's, court documents show. A joint stipulation filed in Washington State District Court on Tuesday by attorneys representing Joseph Kennedy and lawyers for Bremerton School District stated that, quote, Kennedy 
is to be reinstated to his previous position as assistant coach for the Bremerton High School football team on or before March 15, 2023. Kennedy's attorney, Jeremy Dyes, confirmed to ABC News that the coach will be moving back to Bremerton, Washington from Florida later this year to return to his part-time job with the team. How much do you think an assistant football coach at a public high school makes in a town of less than 45,000? Probably not a whole lot. Now, if he was in uh, Houston or he was in Central California or Southern California or maybe Arizona or I don't know, but, but a, a Washington assistant football coach probably doesn't make a ton of money. And my guess is also that this wasn't the first time someone had talked to him before he was fired saying, hey, coach, you can't do that anymore. You can't go out. I mean, this is probably not something that was just a one-off. It probably was just part of his lifestyle as he was praying half, half, uh, after the game, um, not half court, but half field with, this, with these guys. So the article goes on to say, it's expected that he take, his, uh, take the field again for the fall 2023 football season. This is what I underline. A spokeswoman for the school district. Now, remember, the school district is who fired uh, this coach, Joe Kennedy. And he filed suit against the school district in Bremerton, Washington, and went all the way to the Supreme Court and won the suit. So now he's reinstated back to be the football coach at Bremerton High School. And now, this is a recent article, a spokeswoman for the school district said there are, quote, areas where there are still questions between the parties as to how, between the parties of the school district and Kennedy, as to how Kennedy's post-game prayers will be accommodated consistent with the Supreme Court ruling. Do you think there's going to be people that are watching how he does it? Oh, I saw him walk over and talk to Lane Dudley and said, hey, Lane, if there's something you need to pray about after the game, let's go meet in the middle of the field after the game. There's going to be people scrutinizing him even after the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that it was okay. And then it goes on to say, the United States Supreme Court sided with Kennedy in June when justices ruled 6-3 to three that the coach was protected by the Constitution when he knelt and prayed aloud at the 50-yard line postgame, sometimes with his players. I looked at the fact that there were three people on the U.S. Supreme Court that said, you can't do that. That's against his constitutional right. That is persecution. I mean, we, 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 we look at this, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, we look at persecution thinking that it's going to be uh, being fed to the lions, which we'll look at, or being thrown in the fiery furnace, which we'll look at, or being stoned or beaten. But this is the persecution that is in America right now, today. And when it says that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when that happens. This insult that they're talking about here is that word means when it says that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil. That utter all kinds of evil. That utter is insulting to defame, to taunt, to chide, to damage the good reputation of someone, to slander or libel. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little political. And I apologize if this offends you. It's not meant to offend you. I'm not taking, well, I, am, I do take a stance on this particular subject. But this is real life, guys. This is something that I talk to about my, with my players, about real life, about my, the, the players that I coach. It's what I talked about with my children. It's 
that I talked to you about with my friends. This is stuff that really is going on in our world today. And the example that I'm using on this insult is that, you know, this, this idea that in politics you have kind of a center line and you have on one side, don't throw the baby out the bathwater bath water, and don't do, what, what is it called, don't make the exception the rule. Typically, you have Democrats, sorry, Sorry, let's just assume that you guys are all on one side. Whatever, it doesn't matter. So you have, you have Democrats on one side of the aisle. You have Republicans on one side of the aisle. Typically, Republicans, those are the two main parties we have in our culture. We have Republicans and Democrats, and we have a few people that are independents and all that, but majority is Democrats and Republicans. Traditionally, you have Republicans that are, are going to be more conservative. They're going to focus on things like the main two, or, or you know, they're going to focus on the, the right to life. And, um, and, and pro-life is what we will call them. And then on the Democratic side, typically, typically, don't, don't take the exception and make it the rule, typically you're going to have people on the Democratic side being pro-choice. And so when Roe v. Wade got passed, and I want to read this because I didn't want to mess this up, and when Roe v. Wade got passed um, last year, it was uh, something that, oh, what did I write here? I wanted to summarize the Roe v. Wade. Okay. The decision overturned the long... The, the, in July last year when Roe v. Wade got reversed, uh, the decision overturned the long-standing constitutional right to abortion and eliminated federal standards on abortion access that had been established by earlier decisions in the cases Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This is not a stance on abortion. This is not a sermon on abortion. This is an example of persecution that resulted from a Roe v. Wade overturning of abortion at a federal level. So our district congresswoman, Lauren Boebert, was very vocal about coming out and saying that she was glad that Roe v. Wade got overturned. Well, it was almost very soon afterwards, news articles started popping up all over the place in the country that she herself had, uh, had experienced an abortion or had chosen to get an abortion when she was younger. And so there were some studies that were being done and some time frames that were being done, and she came out and said, look, the author of this article was telling everybody and writing and it became national news that I had an abortion when I was, you know, this age at this month, I was three months or four months pregnant with my third son when that happened. And so they, they recanted the article and said, well, that's not true, or they just kind of bury it in the last page. So here we have someone, whether you not agree with Lauren Boebert or not, that's not the point. I don't care. The point is you have someone that was being insulted, defamed, and damaging a reputation of this person because they were standing for something that I would venture to say most Christian people stand for, which is the right to life. From her faith, she's saying this is not right to do this, and she was uh, insulted. So I would say, in a weird sort of way, she was blessed. It's hard to think about it like that, though. It's hard to think about when someone just is lying about you and saying things of evil about you that they are blessed. And in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We're going to get to some Bible stories in a minute, but I wanted to share another example of what I feel is uh, very close to home um, persecution and insulting and saying all kinds of evil against someone to defame their name and to turn people against you. Uh, most of you 
probably don't know Hollis Whitrock very well, uh, but some of you do know him really well. Um, some of you have spent a lot of time with him and studied with him. And a quick, just a very quick uh, thing about Hollis is that when my wife and I first became Christians, we began to go to this Bible study. And I remember the first time we met Hollis is when the Passion of the Christ was playing on the big screen. Uh, and then uh, at the church that we were attending, there was a group that uh, put together kind of a question and answer session. This is not a joke, but there was a priest, Catholic priest, a rabbi, and a Christian pastor. It's not a joke. That really happened. There was a priest, a rabbi, and a Christian pastor on the stage, and it was an open forum to people to ask questions about the passion of the Christ and how biblically accurate it was. And it, there was a couple hundred people in this room. It was a, really fantastic. It was really well put on. Well, we had met Hollis. My wife and I had met Hollis Whitrock, and because of that meeting, uh, the, the preacher of the church at the time noticed that there was a lot of young people within the church, a lot of young couples. Brenda and I were uh, one of those young couples a long time ago, and uh, Teresa and Allison were a young couple. Um, Jake and Crystal Lewis were a young couple, and Daniel and Katie Sturgeon was the other couple that he put together, and there was eight of us plus Daniel Carroll, right, put us in this Bible study group, and the nine of us got together, and we met once a week for six weeks, and from there, uh, we started to lead our own Bible study. Well, Hollis Whitrock is still going to church, and he was an old preacher, and we were a bunch of young kids that didn't have a clue a whole lot about this. We just knew we were really wanting to exercise our faith and grow in the Lord, and so my wife starts working for Hollis at a wood shop and says, hey, Hollis, would you lead a marriage group, a Bible study for young married couples and what it says about being husbands and wives and children and all that because we're young and we're getting ready to, you know, have, hopefully have kids and all that good stuff. And he goes, I'll give you six weeks, Brenda. And he goes, I couldn't say no to her. I couldn't say no to your wife, Nate. And I said, thank you for not. So for six weeks, he led this study. And that six weeks turned into about 20 years. Turned into about, uh, it turned into about 12 weeks, and then it was 24 weeks, and then it was 52 weeks, and it turned into two or three years. But in that meantime, Hollis was teaching a bunch of young, hungry Christians how to really exercise our faith, how to really love Jesus, how to be the hands and feet. And the story that I'm going to tell you, it's one of the most convicting moments of my Christian life. It's when there was a, a young couple that were there, and he, they were very distracting, not necessarily her, uh, but the husband was very distracting. The kids were very distracting. They didn't have a handle on him. It was just very difficult to be in a Bible study and not get distracted. And so we went to Hollis, and we said, hey, Hollis, how do we, like, we're new Christians. How do we kick people out of Bible study? And we were sincere. We're like, we're not learning anything. I mean, it's, it's, they're awkward, and the, you know what I'm talking about? You remember this? There is, it was hard. It, so it wasn't obviously Teresa and Allison, but it was difficult. It, it was just, it was one of those situations we need help. How do we manage these people that aren't kind of fitting our mold of what we feel a Christian is? And Hollis looked at me and he's, all of us, whoever was there, and he said, maybe Jesus put this person in your life to teach you how to love the unlovable. Talk about get knocked upside this, the head with you know, the Word of God, it was like, well, I need to repent, and I need to learn to be more like Jesus. So this was the type of man that Hollis is. This is the type of man Hollis is. 
So this group is beginning to grow, and it's, and it's flourishing, and people are coming to the Lord, and they're studying the Bible, and it's going from eight people to 12 to 24 to 48, and it's growing weekly, weekly, weekly it's growing. People are excited, they're sharing their faith, and the church leaders go, we don't like this. Something's going on there. Tree, stand up and correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding of this. So they li- literally say no. I don't want to be up here and selling something that isn't true. They, they kind of push out the head preacher, and then the rest of the leaders, there's this leadership vacuum that comes in there, and the elders say, we have got to find a way to get rid of this Hollis Whitrock. He's got too much influence over these young kids. And so a couple weeks later, somebody comes with an article and the, the rumor starts out, somehow, among this little group, that Hollis Whitrock is the leader of a cult. The same man that said, maybe God put him in your life to teach you how to love the unlovable. It's teaching you how to husbands love your wives. The same man that was teaching us true Christianity. And so when I think about this concept of persecution... I witnessed it firsthand. Did I, Allison, did I mess up anything on that story? I mean, I witnessed it firsthand. And now I have to sit here and look at the scripture and go, man, was Hollis blessed. <laughs> he's got a bunch of people saying, we got to find a way to get this guy out of this church building because he's, he's just doing some things that we're not quite comfortable with. So, Jesus in Matthew 11 was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. We're going to look at some passages here this morning about persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, when it says here, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can go throughout the Old Testament and you can look at passages, you can look at stories of the Old Testament prophets being persecuted. And we're going to start... In Daniel, in the book of Daniel chapter 3, there's a story about a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in this passage, in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start, we'll go ahead and start in, um, we'll start in verse, start in verse 1, it's a good story. If you haven't read it, pay attention. If you have read it, pay attention, or read it along. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people 
nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, paid no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, you guys have the picture, right? You have three men standing before the king. And the king fashions this big, massive, golden image and says, if you want to live, you need to bow down and worship this thing that I have fashioned. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true, Titus, Grant, and Jonas? Is it true, uh, Dylan, Asher, Lane, Lathan, Evelyn, Hannah? Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the dragon, the harp, the bagpipe, in every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I love, love the response of these three. I can almost picture this confidence, not arrogance, but this confidence that they have when it says, they answered and said to the king, I can almost hear the tone in their voice. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they're thrown into the fire. He's so enraged, he says, heat it up seven times and put them in all their cloaks and put them in, in all their clothing and throw them in there and let's just watch them burn to a crisp. And as you know the story, it gets so hot that the men that were going to throw them into the fire, close enough, they burn up, but the three that they throw in don't burn up. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees a fourth. And then he releases them. And they begin to worship the one true God. That's how they persecuted the prophets that Jesus is referring to. If you flip over the page in Daniel 6, this is one of my favorite stories, because in Daniel 6, it says it pleased Darius, in verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel and with, uh, with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find fault or could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Dave, uh, Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The guy lives a pretty righteous life. The only thing that we can get on him is his relationship with God. So let's see how we can get him. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king. And they said, oh, King Darius, because we had King uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was followed by Belshazzar, and uh, followed by King Darius. And they said, King, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. You can just hear the patronizing in the voices of these men. O king, you're so amazing and awesome. Isn't it? You're so worthy of worship. We should make it worth 30 days that nobody will pray to anyone but you. They will not seek anyone but you for 30 days. If not, they're going to be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into a closet, closed the door, shut off the lights, and said a quick prayer so nobody could hear him. Peg's going, uh-uh. It's not what it says. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper room. He went to the 50-yard line. And he got down on his knees he looked towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You guys know the rest of the story. Going into the lion's den where it was a bunch of little kitties. <laughs> and then when they came out, they threw those that had set the whole thing up, and they no longer were little kitties. And it says they, in fact, this is uh, father's. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Daniel was persecuted, and God saved him. In America... Our persecutions are not like the fiery furnace. They're not like the lion's den. They're not even like the book of Acts, where we see the stoning and the beating. Uh, I said in America, okay? I know there's a very large world out there, but in America, we don't have the kind of persecution that the prophets before us experienced and that we're, we're told to reward uh, let's go back to that Matthew 5, where it says, Blessed are you when others revile you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But we do have persecution. 
And as we've looked at, the persecution for our faith in Jesus and for righteousness' sake, it does exist. So the question I have is, you know, why should these on the surface moments of frustration and pain, why should the slandering and the libel, why should the, the planning and, and, the, and the seeking out to destroy, why should those be looked on as blessings? Why should they be looked at as something that we're happy about? Well, there's three reasons, and I, I want to quote uh, someone that I enjoy reading. The first one is, to have to suffer persecution was an opportunity to show one's loyalty to Jesus Christ. One of the most famous martyrs that uh, we've read about or we've heard about is uh, Polycarp, and he was the, uh, the old bishop of Smyrna. And he was dragged uh, to the tribunal of the Roman magistrate, and he was giving this choice. He said, uh, sacrifice to the godhead of Caesar or die. And it's quoted that Polycarp said, 80 and 6 years came the immortal reply, I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they brought him to the stake and he prayed his last prayer, O Lord Almighty, the father of thy well-beloved and ever-blessed son, by whom we have received the knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour. Here was a supreme opportunity to demonstrate his loyalty to Christ. Quit praying. Quit praying on that field. Quit praying at the restaurant because someone's going to snicker. Quit praying with your kids. Quit living a wholesome life so other people will stop snickering at you. And persecution is an opportunity to demonstrate your loyalty to your Savior. The second thing is to have to suffer persecution is, as Jesus himself said, the same, uh, the way to walk, sorry, to have this, to suffer persecution is, as Jesus himself said, the way to walk the same road as the prophets and the saints and the martyrs have walked. To suffer for the right is to gain a share in a great secession. The man who has to suffer something for his faith can throw his head back and say, brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We see this in Scripture when it looks back in Hebrews and it says, they have gone on before you. Consider the saints. Consider those who have gone on before you. And third, when a man is called on to suffer something for his Christianity, to me, this is, this is what kind of gets the blood in my veins flowing. When you're called to suffer something for Christianity, that is always a crucial moment. It is the great occasion. It is the clash between the world and Christ. It is a moment in the drama of eternity. <laughs> Think about this. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. It is the moment in the drama of eternity. There is a spiritual battle that has gone on from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, there will be enmity between you and the woman, and we get to be a part of something we can't see. We can't see the the the... the the horsemen on the hill. We can't see the, the fiery furnaces going on, the firing ball, the meteor balls going on, and the battle going on, the swords drawn. We can't see that, but we are involved in a very dark spiritual battle for our souls. And when we suffer persecution, we are joining in this class, we are joining in this moment of drama. To have a share in such a moment is not a penalty, but a glory. 
And that's why he's saying, rejoice, you'll be blessed, be glad, because you are, you are part of a glory. It's not a penalty. Rejoice at such a moment, says Jesus, and be glad. The word used for glad there is, is the verb agalastai, and it means which has been derived from two Greek words, which means to leap exceedingly. It is the joy which leaps for joy. As it has been put, it is the joy of the climber who has reached the summit and leaps, and he who leaps for joy that the mountain path is conquered. If you think of ourselves in, in kind of a battle between good and evil, when we suffer persecution, it is us being engaged in the battle. It's us being involved in the fight for righteousness' sake. Because remember, at the beginning, it says here, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. You are, you are engaging in a war, in a battle, where Jesus is the commander and you're a part of that battle. Now, this, all, this, all of this stuff we've talked about, it remains one question. Uh, why is this persecution inevitable? Why is it going to happen? And this one gentleman wrote, it is inevitable because the church, when it really is the church, is bound to be the conscience of the nation and the conscience of society. Where there is good, the church must praise. Where there is evil, the church must condemn. And inevitably, men will try to silence the troublesome voice of conscience. It is not the duty of the individual Christian habitually to find fault, to criticize, or to condemn, but it may well be that his very action is a silent condemnation of the unchristian lives of others, and he will not escape their hatred. It is not likely that death awaits us because of our loyalty to the Christian faith. But insult awaits the man who insists on Christian honor. Mockery awaits the man who practices Christian love and Christian forgiveness. Actual persecution may well await the Christian in industry who insists on doing an honest day's work. Christ still needs his witnesses. He needs those who are prepared not so much to die for him as to live for him. Let me read that again. Actual persecution may well await the Christian in industry who insists on doing an honest day's work. Christ still needs his witnesses. He needs those who are prepared not so much to die for him as to live for him. The Christian struggle and the Christian glory still exist. I feel like, I, I feel like we, as I look around at our culture and at our world, we look at condemning things that, that Jesus flat out said is evil, is wrong, it's sin, it's what will cause you to, to burn. That's what he talks about. I mean, it's in his word. We can't deny it. I know it's not comfortable. I know it's not easy to talk about certain subjects within the church body, especially in mixed, sometimes mixed company. But this is the stuff that really goes on in life that our kids are going to be dealing with. More and more and more and more as the older they get and the further on they get in life. And it's stuff that we have to deal with. And to be able to stand firm on that, plan on being persecuted. Plan on people judging you as um, homophobic or transphobic or masochistic or whatever the different isms are. Or ics are. Whatever they are, you're, you're going to be called a bigot or... Uh, not a bigot. Is bigot racist? Is that what a bigot is? Yeah? Well, you should never be called a bigot, as a, unless they're lying about you, of course. 
they call you a bigot because you're a bigot, you need to repent. But if they're lying about you, that's one thing, you're going to be persecuted. So, point being, actual persecution may well await the Christian industry. Christ still needs his witnesses. He needs those who are prepared not so much to die for him, but to live for him. And what's interesting is that when I, we would look at the Beatitudes, and we see where it ends up, and it talks about the, those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and then you look at the very next passage, and then he goes, oh, by the way, you're, you're the salt of the earth. You're, you're a light. And I had a text message from someone that's considering moving here from back east, and uh, she said, I, I went hiking, my husband and I went hiking, and, and I went off on my own for a couple hours, and we, we met up in another place, and I was just in my prayer time. And I, I feel like God is calling uh, us to Grand Junction to, um, to, build, uh, to help build a church, to help, help build the church that you're a part of. Because I've, you know, in our meetings, I've discussed it with them and told them, you know, about you guys and uh, told them about how, we're kinda, how we operate and things like that. And the text message was, I, I really don't know what to do if this is, not, this is where God wants me or not. And my response was, when I shake a salt shaker, the salt lands where it lands, bounces off this piece of meat and lands on that potato or that broccoli or whatever, and it does its work wherever it lands. It doesn't matter where you live. It matters that you are the salt and that you are keeping things from spoiling. It's a preservative. So next week we're going to be talking about us being the salt of the earth. And that may sound at some point to be somewhat judgmental to some people, um, but I don't think it is. I think that uh, God has called us to preserve this place from spoiling. So, uh, Steve has communion this morning, and don't forget we have a, uh, a food meal after this, good meal after this. Um, I do want to give a praise. I've talked to Bina a few times over the last week, mainly through text messaging, a few phone calls, and She's, uh, she's doing well. She's thanking you for your prayers. I think she was here Wednesday, right? She was not, oh, that's why she said I missed you Wednesday, but we weren't either, so I figured she'd come to Wednesday study. But she said she is doing well. She's recovering well. She's appreciating the prayers, and she said she has to apologize to the doctor for being rude. And I said, you know, I understand being rude. You just got part of your lung taken out. It's okay to be a little grumpy, and I'm sure he'll understand. But what a sweet lady, and uh, thank you for your guys' prayers for being a I think she's doing well, and uh, she misses all of us. So, uh, God bless you guys, and I hope we enjoy the food. Steve, you're going to say a blessing, I'm sure.